Now, some of you, I realize, are very perceptive, and so I, I'll just clarify and let it be known right from the get-go, this is not my normal Bible. Um, you, you all have heard the excuse, the dog ate my homework, right? Well, I, I still have my homework, but my dog ate my Bible, which really frustrated me. But even in that, I can give thanks, right? The dog's still alive. The dog, the dog is well. Um, my Bible is not, but even in that, we can be thankful. We can praise the Lord for his amazing blessings. I haven't figured out yet what that is in relation to the dog eating my Bible, but I have determined that no matter what, I'm going to be thankful because that's what God commands me to do. So, uh, I will be reading, it, it's still in a NASB, the New American Standard Bible, still the, the same version, but um, this is a different, different one that I have to get used to because the words are a little bit smaller. So, <clears throat> anywho, as we dig into the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking at chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And um, in these, we're going to be looking at something that you are probably very, very familiar with. How many of you have heard the feeding of the 5,000? Probably everyone. That is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. So if you have read any of the Gospels, you have read this account of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, when I titled this as No Rest for the Weary, um, I, I got a couple of questions. Like, why, why are you referring to it as No Rest for the Weary? Well, I hope that you're going to come to understand that here in a little bit as we dig into it and as we look at it. Uh, for those of you who like a different title or a, a, a better title, maybe a look at the heart of Christ might also be helpful. You'll notice neither of those, though, deal with the feeding of the 5,000. Why do you think that is? Any, any guesses? Any ideas? Well, you're, you, I've talked to you about this one. You don't get to answer it's my daughter. I can pick on her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can, where they can rest. Well, I, I mentioned that it's not about the food. We, we think of this passage, of this section, as the feeding of the 5,000, and yet that's not the focus. That's not what it's about. Now, that, that's an easy way for us to remember where we're looking at and what we're talking about, but the food really has very, very little to do with it. And I found it interesting, I don't necessarily plan these things that far ahead, but we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and how many of you are going to be eating copious quantities of food? I raise my hand because I intend to. Two days, Two day oh nice. Multiple days. And yet, I want to encourage you to remember, it's not about the food. I mean, yes, we can be thankful for the food, we can enjoy the food, God has blessed us richly, but if our focus is on the food then we miss the whole point. Now let me ask you, just personal experience, have you ever worked really, really hard on something? 
on something that was good, on something that God wanted you to do, whether it's ministry or, you know, taking care of your family or doing your job to the best of your ability or whatever it is, you have worked hard, you've poured yourself into it, and you're tired. You've earned a rest. Now, I'm not saying that you get to be lazy. I'm saying you have done everything, and it is time to rest. And then you get a phone call. I, I see some chuckles and some heads nodding because I think many of us have experienced this. You get a phone call, and it's a friend or a loved one or a, a need, a ministry opportunity. How do you react in that moment? I, I don't necessarily want you to answer out loud. I know of times in my past, in my experience, where I was beat. I was exhausted. I was tired. I had been doing what God wanted me to do, and I needed a break. I just wanted to sit down for five minutes. And somebody came up, or the phone rang, or something interrupted that rest. I title this, No Rest for the Weary, and a look at the heart of Christ, because we're going to see the mind and attitude and ultimately the heart of Christ in this section. It's not about the food. It's about who is Jesus. The whole of the Gospel of Mark is about who is Jesus. And in this section, we're going to find out about his heart, about his attitude, about how he reacts when he's tired, when he's exhausted, and when his followers are tired and exhausted. And what does God expect of us in those moments. So let's go ahead and read uh, Mark chapter 6 verses 30 through 30, 30 through 44 and then we're going to dig into it and try and, and get a glimpse, catch an idea of what is the heart of Christ. Starting off in verse 30, and the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. And the people saw them going, and many recognized them. And they ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And disembarking, he saw a great multitude, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it, when it was already quite late... His disciples came up to him and began saying, The place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away, so that, we may go into, so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and spend two hundred denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go, look. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to recline by groups on the green grass. And they reclined in companies of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were five thousand men who ate 
the loaves. As I said, this is a very familiar account. You've heard about the feeding of the 5,000. Let's dig into it a little bit and see maybe a little bit different perspective than most of the time. I, I don't know about you, but most of the time when I hear about it, when I look at it, it's this amazing account of Jesus multiplying the loaves and the bread. And I don't, I don't mean to discount that or to, to downplay that. It is an amazing account. How in the world is Jesus capable of doing these things? Well, because he's God, obviously. And yet, I think that there's a whole lot more going on. And, and one thing that I've noticed, at least in myself, when I get so familiar with a passage, I get used to it, I sometimes have to step back and start over and, and look at it with fresh eyes and, and try and understand, okay, what is God trying to teach me in this passage? What, are, what am I supposed to understand about who he is, about how he functions, about what he wants? That's, that's really what we ought to do with every passage. But the ones that are so familiar, it can be a little bit more challenging. So let's start through this one. It begins in verse 30, the apostles gathered together. Now, we've been working our way through uh, this, this gospel of Mark. How many times has he referred to the apostles? Does anybody remember? Zero. That's right. He hasn't used this word before. So that ought to stand out to you. Like, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about the disciples. Well, no, he calls them the apostles. What does apostle mean? What? Missionary? A sent one? Anybody else? So the, the idea is of a delegate, a messenger, someone who has been sent forth with orders. So these are the apostles, right? Now, if you recall from earlier, when Jesus selected his disciples, it told us why. Does anybody remember why he, he picked these guys? I've got to turn back a couple of pages. Back in 3, verse 14, it says, And he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach. So that's why he had selected them, why he had called them, so that he could send them out. Now that idea there in chapter 3, verse 14, is the same concept as apostle, as a sent one. That's what he had picked them for, that's what he had designated them for. And then you'll recall back in verses 12 and 13 that he had sent them out. He had told them, I want you to go and do something. Does anybody remember what it was that he was wanting them to do? Okay, to teach and to heal. One more. And to cast out demons. Those three things are what he sent them to do. Um, that's back in, in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And so what was it that Jesus had been doing during his ministry so far? Does anybody remember? Teaching and healing and casting out demons. So one of the, the key ideas with apostle is that it's a representative of the one who sends them. Jesus had been doing these things. He commissioned these guys to go out and do the same thing that he had been doing. He expects his disciples, his followers, to copy him, 
to be copycats, in essence, to do the same things that he has done, to do what he has sent them and called them and commanded them to do. And so, these apostles, after spending that time doing that, they gathered back together, right? Um, Verse 30 says, they gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. Now, I I put together some slides, if you'll go to the next one. We're going we're gonna to take a look at the heart of Christ. And the, the first section, one, one of the feedbacks that I got was, I don't necessarily always give a good outline, so I'm going to try and do that one a little bit better. This is a look at the heart of Christ. Look what we did. Now, I don't think that they came back bragging about it. It says that they came back and reported to him all that they had done. And so they wanted to let it be known This is what we've done. We have done exactly what you told us to do, exactly what you've sent us and commissioned us and commanded us to do. That's what they did. Um, Specifically, it says at the end of verse 30, all that they had done and taught. And so they're reporting back to let him know these are the things that we taught, these are the things that we've done. Now, it doesn't say anything about Jesus' response to that of, hey, good job, well done, or, well, you messed it up, you shouldn't have done this, or, or anything like that. It's just that they reported. And so Jesus then responds to them and says, come away by yourselves to a secluded place. Now, that, that phrase, secluded place, is, is a very interesting one. You start digging into that. It's, it's the idea of the wilderness or solitary or even of a desert. And so it's, it's one of those that can mean several different things. We're going to see in a little bit that uh, everybody sits down on the green grass. And so it seems that they go to a place that is solitary or private. They've been out teaching, ministering, serving, casting out demons, working hard. It's reasonable that they would be tired, that they would have you know, spent all of their energy. And so what does Jesus say? Come away by yourselves and rest a while. He wants them to take a break, to rest. Rest is not a bad thing. Taking a break and and having that pause is actually something that God commanded his people in the Old Testament that they were to have a one day every seven in which they stopped, they ceased. That's the idea of the Sabbath, that they stopped their work. Now, the focus wasn't on resting necessarily, but that's what God did during his Sabbath, and that's what he encouraged them to do, to cease and to rest, to pause. Well, this is what Christ is commanding them, to come away and to rest. Now, I've got another passage up there. This is the parallel in Matthew, and there's there's something in Matthew chapter 14 that I think that we ought to be aware of also. Mark doesn't bring it out, and I I tend to not bring in the other accounts too much unless it's really significant, and I think that this one is. So let's take a quick look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 12 and 13. This is, like I said, the parallel account. Um, You'll recall last week we looked at when John the Baptist was murdered, when he was killed, right? Well, Matthew is going to set us a little bit of the time frame of how this is all functioning and what's, what's going on here. It says, now when Jesus heard it. So this is right after Jesus gets news that John the Baptist had been killed, had been beheaded. When Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place by himself. And when the multitudes heard of it, 
heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. That's exactly what we're about to see happening in uh, Mark. So it's a parallel account. It's telling us the same thing. But what I want us to notice is that Jesus has just heard about the death of his cousin, the death of his forerunner. Now, it doesn't tell us what Jesus' response to this is, though we know when others of his friends have died, even to the point with Lazarus, Jesus weeps. He's sorrowful. So it is, it is reasonable to assume that this is difficult for him. John the Baptist was his cousin. He was also the prophesied one who was his forerunner. And so this is significant. In some way or another, this is significant to him that John the Baptist has been killed. He has just heard about it. His disciples just get back. So this whole group needs a break. That's, that's the point that I'm aiming at. Everybody needs a break. Not just that Jesus is trying to get them a break, but that all of them need to be able to have this pause. So the disciples come back. They report to Jesus what has happened. He says, come away by yourselves, and he is going as well, and rest for a while. Now there's a, a little parenthesis down at the bottom of verse 31 that tells us a little bit of the context of what's happening. For there were many people coming and going. This is a constant thing. They had been very busy. Jesus had been very busy. Everybody's very busy. It's all going on. They didn't even have time to eat. Now, does that phrase sound familiar to anybody else? Earlier, back in chapter 3, verse 20, we saw the same thing happen. That they were so busy and so active that they didn't even have time to eat. And so it makes sense that Jesus wants them to come away. They've been busy, he's been busy, he's just gotten bad news, nobody's even been able to eat. It's time for a break. So, verse 32, they went away in the boat to a secluded place. Now, this secluded is the same as the previous secluded. It means a, a wilderness, a solitary, a desert type of a place. It's somewhere away from everybody else. Now, we aren't told specifically where they go, Although in Luke chapter 9, there's kind of indication that it's somewhere near Bethsaida, which is in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Specifically, more than that, we're not told. But Luke 9 verse 10 kind of gives us an indication that they go up to the northern part of the sea, somewhere near where the Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. Somewhere out in that region is a secluded, quiet peaceful place where they can relax and enjoy, except verse 33 comes into play. The people saw them going, and many recognized. They knew exactly who it was. They, they recognized not only that Jesus was there, but that the disciples were all there. They saw them going, and so they ran together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. Now, that one, that one kind of stands out. Like, wait a minute, how did they run and get there ahead of everybody else? Was, was the boat going slow? Was there some, something going on with the, the sea that prevented them? How We're not told all the details. We're, it, it's not all explained to us. But somehow or another, they, are, um, they get into the boat. The disciples and Jesus get into the boat, and they start to head up to this quiet, secluded, um, wilderness-type place, and the crowds follow. Not only do they follow, they get there ahead of them. Now, right now, at this point, it just says the people saw, many recognized. We aren't given an indication of how many 
there are yet. We're going to get there. But yet, we're, we're just told that a crowd, a group. Now, what have we seen about crowds so far in the Gospel of Matthew? Anybody remember? Sorry, in the Gospel of Mark. Okay, there are some believers, some antagonists. That there's a constant crowd, even to the point of pressing in on them. The, the word, the idea is to crush them. So th this crowd is just constantly there. I go back to my initial question. If you've ever been serving the Lord, doing what's right, that moment of pause comes or you think it comes. I, I don't know necessarily whether they could see these crowds or not, but when they get to where they're going, they definitely see it. Because, verse 34, when Jesus went ash ashore, he saw a large crowd, a big crowd. We're going to find out a huge crowd, I would say. 5,000 people is massive, but you'll notice when we get down to it, it doesn't say 5,000 people. It says 5,000 men. Matthew will fill that out and say, plus women and children. So this is a huge crowd that has, has rushed ahead, gotten there. When Jesus saw it, or when, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. Now, put yourself in this, in this picture and think. If you were a disciple who'd been busy, who'd been serving, who'd been doing all of these things, whether it was while you're on the boat and you see them running, or just once you arrive, you see this massive crowd, what would your reaction be? Just, you don't have to answer but just think, I mean, personally, I, I'm not a big fan of 10, 15,000 people gathered together in the first place, but a huge crowd, wait a minute, I'm supposed to get a break. I thought I was going to, at least that's my, my gut fleshly response. I'm willing to admit it. That's, I'm not always the, the, have the same attitude as Christ. Because what does it say? Do what? Stay on, the, stay on the boat. Nope, keep paddling, guys. Let's just keep going. I don't know. I don't know. Hoist the sail. Let's, no. What was Jesus' response? What does it say? He felt compassion. He felt pity. He felt sympathy. He understood this, this crowd, this people. They had come from the region around, from all the cities, it said. They had gathered together because they knew who Jesus was. And his response was not, guys, leave me alone. I'm tired. I'm sorrowful. I, I've just been through or none of that. His response was to feel pity, to feel compassion for them. Now, this, this word really stood out to me. And I started digging in, okay, what, what are some other uses of this word in Scripture? What are some other examples of it? Did anybody else happen to, to look some of those up or try and figure out this idea? Yeah, for the, for the word compassion. One of the good examples that, that I noticed was, you, you recall the um, account of the Good Samaritan, right? where there are Levites and priests and all of these people who walk by and they see a guy beat up on the road and they do nothing about it. But then there's a good Samaritan. He was moved with compassion as well. He had this same feeling, the same attitude. 
another good example uh, that actually comes from the Old Testament that the Greek translation uses the exact same word is when Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the water and sees a, a basket, an ark, and hears a baby cry and opens it up. She was moved with compassion. The word itself, the idea, is moved in the bowels, which I know sounds kind of weird to our ears, but you have to understand the culture and the, the setting. You, you ever get um, butterflies in your stomach, get that feeling deep in your, in your gut of like, oh, this is, this is significant, this is important. That's what they're referencing. That's what they're talking about. Jesus felt that. He had an emotional response, but not just emotional. It was something that he put into practice then because of what he does next. He began to teach them many things. And so he doesn't say, oh, why are you here? What's going on? Or anything like that. He goes right back to who he always is, what he always does. And he begins to teach them because he felt compassion for them. Now, it specifies one of the reasons that he does feel that compassion. And it, it uses this example of the flocks. And those, those examples and ideas, those word pictures come up quite a bit. He looks at them and it says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. They were wandering around. They didn't know what to follow or what to do. They were like lost sheep. And so he, as the good shepherd, as the great shepherd, he wants to care for them. Now, why would it be that they, they were like lost sheep, like they didn't have a shepherd? Well, we've talked a little bit about the religious leaders of the time. You remember the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of these scribes and everybody? They were, they were arguing and bickering about little minutia details of the Old Testament, and they weren't caring for the people. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to teach and train and develop the people and help them. And instead, there's at least 5,000 people in this northern part of uh, Galilee, the Galilee region, who have nothing to follow. And then they hear about Jesus. And they rush out. And they, they're searching. They're longing. They want to find something. And so they go to Jesus. And even though his personal response reasonably could have been, hey guys, give me, give me five minutes tomorrow. I'll, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Today, I'm, I'm going to go take a nap. He doesn't do that. See, I, I, I called this a look at the heart of Christ. Look at that. <laughs> if you were in this situation, what would your response be? And yet, this is what Christ's response is to feel compassion, and to begin to teach them many things. So, that's a section. And, and theoretically, we could pause there and just recognize that, that that's what's going on. That's the setting. That's everything that's happened. That is the full account. But we haven't really addressed the disciples yet. What about them? How do they respond? What, do, what are their thoughts? What's going on in this, in this setting, in this situation? Well, initially, we looked at what they did. They gave their report. Now we've looked at the crowd. Uh, my next section is called, Look at the Time. You ever have one of those moments where you're like interacting with somebody, dealing with something? Oh, look at the time. It's, I gotta, I know I've used that a few times. When it was already quite late, 
Now, it doesn't tell us the actual time of day. There are indicators that this is probably well past the, the noon meal. You know, normally they would have a larger meal at noontime, and, and this is way past that, 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon type of an idea. Um, if you were to jump down to verse 47, which we aren't getting to today, you'd find that evening arrives at that point. So we're not talking quite late as in nighttime. We're just saying that the day has, has well progressed, that it's getting later in the day, and they've not stopped for food. You recall all the way back in 31, they didn't even have time to eat. They had loaded up on a boat. They'd gone across or, or up into this northern region. They've gotten off, and as soon as they arrive, the crowds are there. And Jesus, moved with compassion, begins to teach them, to, to interact with them, to help them. They've not paused for food. It's getting quite late. And his disciples came to him and said, Now, reasonable idea, reasonable thought, but we find out what they are thinking about what's going on in their minds. We've just seen the heart of Christ, that he was moved with compassion on seeing this crowd because they were like sheep who had no shepherd. They were wandering around lost, needing direction, needing guidance, needing someone to care for them. And now we have a view of what the disciples' attitudes were. What does it say that they, they told him? This place is desolate. Now, that's one of those where I, I don't really care for the translation because it's the exact same word as what we've already seen multiple times of that secluded place. It's the, the same idea, that it's uh, out in the wilderness, that it's a desert, that it's uh, a private place, that it's, it's somewhere out like that. The thing that you need to remember, who picked the spot? Jesus did. He's the one who said, let's go to a secluded place. So, obviously, he knows that this is a secluded place. And yet the disciples, they come up to him and they're like, um, this place is desolate and it's already quite late. Um, send them away. Now, realistically speaking, is that reasonable to, to start thinking that way? Like, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I've been ministering, I've been serving, I've done everything you want me to, Jesus. Can't I get a bite to eat? Send them away, so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. That sounds reasonable. It really does. But ultimately, what they're saying is, this is not our responsibility. Why was Jesus moved with compassion? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Whose responsibility is it to care for the sheep? The shepherd. They're saying, hey, send them on. Get rid of them. They're in the way. They're causing problems. They're... And they give kind of a reasonable explanation. You know, that, that way they can go into the surrounding countryside. They can go buy themselves something to eat. Well, what was Jesus' response in verse 37? You give them something to eat. Jesus had been training and developing these disciples to be like him, to do what he did. And now he's saying, feed them. Now, we do need to, to pause just a moment, look at the context. What had they just done? They'd just gone out on mission. They'd just been serving him. 
What did Jesus tell them to take with them? Nothing. So somehow they had been fed during this time that they were serving. We're not told what or how, but you would expect that they would have learned from that that, okay, God provides in some way, in some fashion. Jesus just flat out tells them, you give them something to eat. Now, what is then the disciples' response? What, what is their, their thought on that? Okay, not enough money. They got to go find something. Anything else? It, it would take a long time. So they, they said to him, verse 37, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? Now, this is one of those, when just Isaac personally, when I read scripture, I, I sometimes wish that it gave the vocal inflections. You expect me to go get something for them to eat? Or well, should, should I go into town and, and buy something for them? Or It, it doesn't tell us. And so you, you start reading commentators, and, and they're going to come up with all kinds of different attitudes in this. It doesn't specifically say. It doesn't tell us what, what their attitude on this is. They ask it as a question, and so perhaps they are asking permission. So you're saying we should go into town to buy food for them, or perhaps they're a little bit incredulous, like uh, you really want us to go into town and buy something for them? It doesn't specify, and so I don't know. I'm not sure. When I pause and remember that there are 12 of them, my guess, and this is Isaac's guess, my guess is that there was a mixture of those attitudes, that some of them were incredulous, that some of them were trying to solve it, that you know, different people were, were interacting with it differently. What it says is, shall we go spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? That would be a reasonable action to take, Remember, there are 5,000 people. Did anybody look at 5,000 men? Thank you. 5,000 men that they needed to feed. Did anybody look up what a denarii is or, or just remember from the past? A day's wages in general. Now, as with today, what is a day's wage? Uh, depends on inflation, current rates, all of that stuff. So a denarii is a, in general, a day's wage. Um, but you start running some numbers. They're saying, should we go spend ten to $20,000 to feed these guys? Now, think about that for a moment. Th this is six months' wages, basically. 200 days. That's a lot of money. Do the disciples have that kind of money? Did Jesus have that kind of money? So it's, it's likely that they're, they're recognizing that this seems like a little bit out there. Now, again, you run some numbers. Let's say that it's that $10,000 range. 5,000 men plus women and children, we're talking $2 a plate per family type of an idea. That's probably not going to get them a lot of bread. We're not sure. We're not exactly told. I'm making some generalizations and some assumptions about currency exchange and cost of bread and all of that stuff. But in general... This is not even enough. What, what they're suggesting isn't even enough to give them a feast, to give them a big meal. It's just to get them something to eat so that they can continue on to survive the day. So they're, they're making a suggestion. 
that theoretically could be workable, but it would be very expensive and very difficult. And then they would have to go into town, spend that money. They'd have to find somewhere that would have that much food. I'm guessing if I walked into one of these towns, I would have a hard time finding enough food right now at any of the grocery stores to feed 10 to 15,000 people. So, I mean, there's all kinds of logistical issues going on here. I, do, I don't want you to miss any of those. You, you slow down and you pause and you look at this and it's like, that does seem a little bit crazy. How in the world could they possibly do that? And so, Jesus says, look at the options. You feed them. They, they look around and they're like, okay, we'll go spend 20 grand and, and maybe we can get everybody a little bit to eat. And he says... How many loaves do you have? Go, look. Now, they, it, it, it struck me reading through this, they didn't know what they had. And then I, I started thinking like, okay, they have just come back from this trip that God had sent them on, or that Jesus had sent them on, and had told them, don't take things with you, don't take money, don't, don't worry about your provision, just God's going to provide. He's going to take care of you. They have arrived back, reported what they were doing, and Jesus said, come, we're getting in a boat and we're going. They didn't bring supplies. They didn't bring much. So they had to go and look. And it, it says when they found out, because they didn't know. Yes, ma'am. Good question. The initial statement is that he said to the 12. They're the ones who said, hey, it's getting late. Um, we're hungry. They're hungry. There's nothing around here. Send them away. And he's like, no, you feed them. And, and well, how, how should we feed them? Well, what do you have? How many loaves do you have? And what, what is interesting and needs to be brought up here is that uh, in John chapter 6, verse 9, the parallel in the Gospel of John we're actually told where they find this. Mark doesn't express where this comes from, but you've heard the, the account of the feeding of the 5,000, right? It's a boy. It's somebody else who had this food. So they didn't even have this five loaves and two fish. Uh, Jesus tells them, how many loaves do you have? Go and look. So in answer to your question, it was directed to the 12 disciples initially, and they probably didn't have anything. And so they go out into the crowd and start looking to find something. And there's this boy from John chapter 6, verse 9, uh, this boy that, that has five loaves and two fish. Now that then becomes very interesting. We think of a loaf of bread as that thing that you buy in the grocery store about yay big that's sliced into, say, 20 slices. That's 10 sandwiches right there, right? And uh, some fish... I saw somebody had a picture of a fish that was a sturgeon. How big was that thing? Like, it was massive. 43-inch sturgeon. I mean, we're, we're talking, that's not what this is talking about. The loaves that they had was more like flatbread. Um, most societies around the world have some form of flatbread, whether it's a tortilla or a pita bread or naan or whatever it is. And that's the kind of bread that we're talking about. So instead, in, in our minds, instead of a loaf of bread like this, think a slice of bread. But not even a slice of bread, think like a tortilla or a, a pita. The amount of food that this boy had that they were able to find was basically 
one person's food for one day. It was his lunchbox. That's what they had. Not a huge amount, just a little bit. Yes, sir? That, that would be a, uh, an interesting response. He could have. I mean, it, it does seem odd that no one else had any food. And yet, we go back to what was the setting? What was the situation? They all recognized that it was Jesus. This is verse 33. They all recognized that it was Jesus and his disciples, and they ran out. Nobody else had made preparations either. And so everybody gets out there, and they're out in the middle of, of nowhere. They're in a secluded place out in the middle of the wilderness. Nobody brought anything except for this boy who had his lunchbox. I mean, that's, that's basically what we're talking about here. The two fish are probably like sardines. I mean, small fish. We're not talking huge sturgeons. We're talking, you know, just a little bit. Enough for a meal. In, in Isaac's terms, we're talking two or three peanut butter and jelly sandwiches type of an idea. This is not a huge amount of food. They came back, or when, when they found out, they said, five, lo- five and two fish. Because Jesus had asked, how many loaves? We have five loaves and two fish. And that's it. What kind of a response would be reasonable at this point? You're right, there is no food, just send them away. <laughs> no, not at all. That's not Jesus' response. He commanded them all to sit down. Now, the, the NASB that I read had it as recline, and I think that that's probably the better way to phrase it. The idea that is being presented here is prepare for a banquet. Now, wait a minute. We have five loaves and two fish. We have one little boy's lunchbox. Why are we getting ready for a banquet? That, that's what it is. He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. Get ready for a banquet. The, the idea of groups is a phrase that is used of the table gatherings at a party, at a banquet. And so I want you to sit down as if you are getting ready for a banquet. That seems kind of odd. Now, one of the things that you've got to keep in mind as you read through the, the Gospels is the whole thing was written as a single unit. And we've been, we've been breaking it apart. What just happened in the last section, there was a banquet, right? There was a big party with lots of food and lots of drinking and all kinds of stuff going on. And now Mark is using similar type language to say, hey, I want you to get ready for a banquet. But this is completely different. And it ought to spark in your minds this comparison between the banquet that Herod has and the banquet that Jesus is about to have. And yet, We're looking at this like, wait a minute, there's no banquet. We're talking one kid's lunchbox for 5,000 men plus women and children. This doesn't make sense. Hate to break it to you, a lot of things Jesus does don't make sense in our minds. Yet, what what does he command? He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. Now, that in groups, the second one is different word than the first one. That second one, it is expressed as like a garden plot. The, the short version is they organize themselves. They sit down in rows, they get ready, everything's prepared. Now, it's interesting that they're divided into hundreds and of fifties. 
because that has more of a military type connotations than necessarily sitting down in this idea of preparing for a banquet. But I think that Mark is using both of them to kind of express what's going on. They're organizing themselves in such a way that the service would be easy. They, they'll be able to get around everybody to feed everybody, um, but also that they are preparing for this banquet idea. In one of the other parallel accounts, um, when this gets done, the, the group actually tries to take Jesus by force and make him the king, make him the ruler. So there is a little bit of this military connotation going on, but Mark's not really emphasizing that here. But he tells everybody to sit down. They all sit down. And then he takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he looks up towards heaven and blesses and breaks and gives and divides. That's, that's what's going to happen in this next section. There wasn't much. In fact, there was very little compared to the size of the crowd. And yet Jesus receives that. He takes it. And he looks towards heaven. He looks up. I think that's my next, my next slide. Is He looked up. He recognized that it's not about the food. It's not about the quantity. It's not about these things. He blessed. Now, most of our translations have a parenthesis or a, a bracket, the food. Now, when you are getting ready to sit down to a meal and you pray before a meal, I'm not sure everybody does, but I, I assume you should, you ought to. Um, when you pray before the meal, what are you blessing? Are you, are you thanking God for the food? Are you blessing the food itself? Or is it, is, it's kind of all of that, right? Well, that's, that's what's going on here. It's not just that he, he blesses the food itself, but he thanks God. He's praising him and blessing the food all at the same time. So it's, it's all of that going on. And then he starts to break it. And if you've ever had like naan or flatbread or you know, something of that nature, pita, you, you start tearing it apart. And he, he tears it apart and he gives some to his disciples. And he tears it and gives it. 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 And he tears it and get, you get the idea, right? It says he kept giving. And as was mentioned, this would take a long time to be able to feed 5,000 men plus the women and the children. And he tears it and he gives it and he tears it and he gives it. And the disciples go out and serve. And they pass this out. And they pass it to everybody. And he divided up the fish among them all as well. So what he did with the bread, he does with the fish as well. And it says they all ate and were satisfied. Now, that's one of those where I've, I have heard some that kind of get off because that's the, that's the English version. They were satisfied. And so that means that, you know, obviously Jesus couldn't do a miracle like this. So they, they were just content. They said, oh, this young boy, he, he was willing to give his food. And so, no, I'm okay. I don't want to. And that's just a bunch of baloney. The word here is not that they were content and, and said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I don't need to eat. The word here is that they were stuffed. This same word is used in Revelation 19.21 to refer to ravens after a battle in which they come, the carrion birds come and gorge themselves. That's this, that's this idea. So not that these, these, this crowd was gluttonous by any means, but that they ate until they were stuffed. 
they ate until they were full, kind of like we did last Sunday with our, with our meal. If you didn't, it was your own fault. Just like many of us are going to be doing later in the week, you, they're going to eat till they were full, until they were actually satisfied. Not that, they were, that, that anyone was in want, but that they were stuffed. And then they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces. Now, how much food did we start with? Five loaves and two fish. One kid's lunchbox, basically. I mean, those are my words, but that's basically what it is. What do they pick up? Twelve baskets full. Now, there is some debate, discussion about these baskets. We're not told how big they are or where they came from. There, there are two ideas that I, I think are most fitting. Either in the, sh- in the boat, in the ship, it was a fishing ship, they would often have baskets. This word is used of that kind of a basket. It's a large basket that they would get the, the fish into when they are unloading it to take it onto the dock to be able to sell it. That's one option. We're talking big baskets. The other option, equally valid, equal use of this word, is something that every Jewish man would carry with them. I'm going to call it a satchel or a a man purse, a bag, that they would just carry with them all the time. And so either they went back to the boats and they had these big fishing baskets, or each of the disciples had their, their bag that they always carried with them, and those bags were empty, by the way, because they didn't have anything to eat, that they filled up. One way or the other, the point is... They went from having nothing to having a lot. Now, obviously, we haven't gotten into the next section. We'll we'll dig into that next week. But does anybody know what happens next, where they're going to go? Go ahead. Open book quiz. You're welcome to take a look. Okay. But but what, what happens with them? They get into the boat. Jesus commands them right after this, get in the boat and and keep going. Now, they didn't have any provision. They'd been busy and active. They hadn't had time to stop and eat. Their larders were empty. They had nothing. And now, Jesus has just provided each of them with a basket of food to take them on to the next part of their journey. I, I don't want us to miss that this isn't just that Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus women and children, but that Jesus made preparations for his disciples to continue on into ministry, to do the next phase of what he has called them to do. That, that ought to blow your mind away that Jesus not only is taking care of the crowd, but he's also taking care of his people. And yet, we go back to what I started with, there is no rest for the weary. They've not stopped. They've not paused. We're going to see in the next section that does happen. But up to this point, they have not stopped. There's been ministry after ministry after ministry. And yet, Jesus is taking care of them. He's providing for them. He has just given each of them a basket of food for the next phase of their journey. And then almost as, a, as an afterthought or a side note, we, we get all the way to the end of this, really verses 42 through 44, they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up 12 full baskets of broken pieces and also of the fish. And, and that's kind of how Mark summarizes it. 
He doesn't go into anything else that happens with the crowd or what's going on or any of that stuff. He just moves on then to tell us about what happens with the disciples. But he says that there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Now, the account in Matthew chapter 14 is going to, that's where we find out that there were women and children also. So this crowd is 10 to 15,000 people at least. It's a huge crowd. And they were all fed. They were all satisfied. Jesus has just worked a huge, amazing miracle. They are getting ready after this to go away to uh, Bethsaida and then across the sea. Um, Jesus has prepared for the disciples. What do you think would be a reasonable response from the disciples after all of this? The last section, they went out, they were ministering, they were serving, God took care of them. In this section, they have seen Jesus work this huge miracle. Jesus told them, you feed them, like, we can't, and so Jesus does it himself. And Jesus not only takes care of the crowd, but also provides for them. What do you think would be their response? What, what should their response be? Amazement and awe, Amazement and awe trust, following him doing more of the same, being his representatives, being his apostles like he had, had designated them and intended them to be. We're going to see next week when we get down to verse 52. Well, go ahead and take a look at Mark chapter 6, verse 52. Well, I'm going to back up to 51 because it's middle of a sentence. Um, we, we mentioned they cross in the boat, Jesus walks on the water, we'll, we'll dig into that next week. But he gets into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were greatly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. But their hearts, their heart was hardened. So what? It's an amazing story. It's one of those that is told to the kids a lot. It's told to adults a lot. We've all seen it. We've all heard about the feeding of the 5,000. What should we take away from this? What should we learn or understand? Well, I want to challenge you. The next time that you have earned a rest, serving the Lord, doing what he wants, living for him, and then an opportunity for ministry comes up. You get that phone call. You, you hear about something that a need, how will you respond? Will you have the mind of Christ, as we were commanded in Philippians 2? Will you have the heart and attitude that Jesus has expressed in this, moved with compassion, taking action to provide for these folks? Or will you have the heart of the disciples, hardened, missing the point completely misunderstanding all that is going on. Yes, sir. That's really what it comes down to. We need to just trust him. So what? What kind of a heart, what kind of an attitude will you have? Now, obviously, I say that we should have the mind of Christ, that we should have the heart and the attitude of Christ. That's what followers of Jesus ought to have. Which assumes then that you are a follower of Christ. If not, that's the, really the first step. That's what it takes. 
But these disciples, they had been sent out by Christ. They were supposed to be following him. They ought to get it. We, as a church, as proclaimed followers of Christ, we ought to get it. Yet oftentimes, I don't know about you, but I know about me, my gut response, my, my heart response, isn't exactly what it ought to be all the time. We each ought to have this mind of Christ who when he sees opportunities, no matter what it is, no matter when it comes up, no matter what's going on in my own, that's an opportunity to serve him. And I want to encourage you to take those opportunities, to use them to glorify Christ in your lives and in your attitudes, in your actions, in all of who you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Lord, this is a very familiar passage, and yet if we slow down and look at it, we catch a glimpse of the heart of Christ. Lord, it's amazing. It's a high calling that you've given us to follow you, to serve you, to be like Christ. Lord, we need your help. We need your strength to be able to be like Christ, to have that heart, to have that attitude. So Lord, we pray that you would give us that mindset of compassion for others because they need you. They need to be told about who you are and what you've done. They need to know the gospel, that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died a death on our behalf, and rose again the third day. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have saved us who have put our faith and trust in you. Thank you that you have commissioned us to go out and tell others. Help us to be faithful, to accomplish what you desire. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.